Let me give you some tips on how to prepare for a Bible study before we get in this morning's message. Four things that uh, will help you adequately prepare for a Bible study. In the first place, um, I think what you ought to do is you ought to schedule your Bible study time. You ought to pick a specific time in the week when you're going to study the Bible. If you don't schedule it, you'll just find yourself going from week to week to week and never really uh, getting into a consistent Bible study pattern. Now, I'm going to say something this morning that may shock you, but I don't think you should study the Bible every day. I think you ought to have a quiet time every day. But I don't think you should try to study the Bible every day. There's a big difference between having a quiet time and Bible study. If you have a Bible study in your quiet time, it'll kill it. Because the Bible study, you go for content, you go for learning, you go for understanding, you go for application. In a quiet time, the purpose is to just go and meet Jesus. Just to be alone with God. Read a small passage of scripture in your quiet time. Um, pray over it. Go over your schedule for the day. Time of meditation on some scripture verses. Time for scripture memory, things like that. That's what you do in a quiet time. But in Bible study... You have an extended period of time. You cannot study the Bible in 15 minutes. But you can have quite time in 15 minutes. Now, what I suggest you do is that you pick out one or two times a week an extended period of time, like a couple hours. Like maybe from 2 to 4 in the afternoon or, or 7 to 9 at night. An extended period of time. It's better to study the Bible once a week for two or three hours than it is to study try to study the Bible for, say, 15 minutes a day on a sporadic, uh, haphazard approach. What I think you ought to do is just get where you can get alone for a couple hours, spread out your study tools, your papers, your notes, sit down and really dig into the Word of God for an extended period of time. Now, I realize that you have pretty determined schedules in college, but one possible suggestion might be Sunday afternoon. That's a, that's a good time. It's usually kind of a down time for a lot of you. Uh, you come back from church, hopefully, and uh, in that afternoon time on Sunday afternoon, just take an extended period of time where you can really work on a, on a scheduled Bible study. So block it out. Now, the worst enemy I have discovered for Bible study is the television. Because uh, it, it's so easy when you're tired, uh, you finish class, just come in and flip on the boob tube. And uh, just kind of put your mind in neutral. Do you know that, that if you're an average American, you have already amassed, 18, and you're 18 years old, you've already amassed 18,000 hours of television viewing. Over 1,000 hours a year, that's average viewing. It's actually more than that now. If you live to be 65, you're an average American, you will amass in your lifetime nine and a half solid years of TV viewing. Is that the way you want to spend nine and a half years of your life? Now, let's say you went to a Bible study once a week for an hour a week from day zero to day 65. Let's say you went to Sunday school one hour a week. Do you realize that if you went to one Bible study a week for one hour, your entire life, that only equal four months of Bible teaching? Now, is there any wonder why we, you know, a lot of people, they, you know, they know more about... Uh, you know, the TV shows than they do about uh, Scripture. And uh, they can tell you more about Michael Jackson than they can tell you about Paul. Don't let the TV become a controller in your life. The worst time to have a Bible study is when you're tired. You ought to be alert. You ought to be uh, uh, alive and, and uh, wide awake. So uh, get, get awake before you try to get into a Bible study. The best time to study your Bible is when you're at your best. That's just the general rule. Now, the second worst time to study the Bible is right after a big meal. Because at that point, all of the blood is in your stomach instead of in your brain, helping those muscles digest food, and you're going to be kind of sluggish. So schedule your Bible study time. Another suggestion I would uh, suggest is that you keep a notebook. And I see many of you already have notebooks, and that's great. We forget 90 to 95% of what we hear in 72 hours if we don't write it down. So it's important to make notes, to keep a notebook. I keep a notebook wherever I go. I, I take notes, and um, that's one of the ways that, that God has helped me to grow as a Christian.
Third thing I would suggest that you do is that you get the right tools. Now, there are a lot of Bible study tools that are available. But really, you could get four or five basic tools and you would be set up for life. I would not waste your money on a lot of extra commentaries, in other words, what people have said about the Bible. But I would get some basic tools. For instance, a concordance. A concordance is a word list of the Bible. It lists every word in the Bible every time that word is used. We're going to be using a page out of concordance tonight in our study. A topical Bible is a good study tool. Nave's topical Bible is one type. And what that does is it takes all of the verses and it ranges them in the Bible by topics. Uh, for instance, let's say you want to do a study of um, <clears throat> um, angels. Well, you just look up the word angels and all the verses on angels are written out in a topical Bible. If you want to do a study of love, you look up the word love and all the, words of, uh, all the verses on love are written out in the Bible. Topical Bible. So that's a, that's a very helpful tool. A word study book. It, it used to be that you had to know Greek and Hebrew to study the words of the Bible. You don't anymore. Because all of the study has been done, all the research has been done, the best tools are available, and uh, you don't have to know it. One of the best ones is Vine's Expository Dictionary. Vine's Expository Dictionary. And basically what that is, is it, it shows... You know, there are, in the Hebrew and the Greek, there are over 14,000 words used in this Bible, in the Hebrew and the Greek. But when they translate it into English, they use less than 6,000. So you see that when you try to cram 14,000 meanings into 6,000 words, you're going to lose something. For instance, the word servant. You look up the word servant, and, and the word servant is used all the time in the New Testament. But in the Greek, there are seven different words for servant. And they each have a different meaning. And so uh, you will look up in an expository dictionary the word servant. It will tell you what the meaning of each of those original words was, which one is being used in the particular text you're looking at. So get some right tools. And then the fourth thing I would suggest to you is that you spend a short time in prayer before each Bible study. Spend a short time in prayer. And now this is not your prayer time. All you're trying to do is you're, you're just asking God to make you sensitive to his, uh, to his will. A good verse for that is uh, Psalm 119, 18. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. You just ask God, God, help me to see something out of the Bible that I've never seen before. And you just pray a short prayer. You pray a prayer of cleansing. Say, God, I confess my sins to you. I ask your forgiveness. You be clean before the Lord. Get a, an open and honest relationship. And then, as you study the scripture... You have the author there to help interpret. So a short prayer before, before Bible study is uh, advisable. Now this morning I'm going to teach you another very simple method. We, we started with the, the easiest one last night. We're going to take the second easiest one this morning. And it's called the chapter summary method. Now what I want you to do is I want you to take out the form. The, if you don't happen to get all of the notes on what I'm going to share this morning, that's okay because we have photocopied the chapter out of the book for you. So don't worry about trying to write down everything I say this morning. Just write down the points, uh, main points, and uh, you say, well, why even do that if it's written down for me? Because if you write it down, you will remember it better, even though it's already given to you right there. But there are ten questions that you're going to ask of the chapter summary. So get out that chapter summary form. Do that. Chapter summary form. Why is this a, uh, a good method? Well, for one thing, it's very easy to learn. I can teach you this, this method in about 15 minutes. And uh, you can use it the rest of your life. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 1,189. That means if you, if you do a chapter summary, one a day, you'll, you'll go through the entire Bible in three years. Now, I do not suggest that you do that. Because you'll get bored with the same method. That's why uh, I developed these 12 methods. And by the way, in the book, they are listed in order of difficulty. Chapter 1 is the easiest. Chapter 12 is the, the most difficult method. Um, and, but there is variety so that you don't get bored with uh, the same methods over and over. It doesn't take much time to do. It doesn't require any Bible study tools. If you will write down these 10 words that begin with C in, your, in the flyleaf of your Bible... 
Then the next time you get stuck in a bus station or are waiting for a plane or doctor's office, you've got your Bible, you can open the Bible, pick out a chapter, read it a few times, go through the method very quickly, and, and, and just have a nice Bible study without having to have a whole bunch of tools uh, to carry around. When I usually go on a retreat like this and I want to do Bible study, this is the method that I use because I don't carry a concordance around with me as I, I travel around. I don't carry some of these other Bible study tools or study Bibles. So uh, it's a good method to use when you're making a survey of a book. Just to read through the book, read, read a chapter, summarize it, read a chapter, summarize it, read a chapter, summarize it, and then you get the entire contents down. So what do you do? Well, there are ten things that you're going to ask. But the first step in a chapter summary method is that you read through the chapter five times. That's step number one. Read through the chapter five times. You say, why five times? Because the more you read through a chapter, the more you're going to get out of it. If you read it twice, you will get twice as much out of it as if you read it once. And if you read it five times, certain things will begin to um, appear to you that you missed from a first casual reading. So you want to read it through five times. Now let me give you some tips on how to read a Bible. How to read a text. Number one, Read it through without stopping. Okay? In other words, the first couple times you read through the chapter, don't stop in the middle and get, get sidelined. Just, you're trying to get the whole flow of the, of the chapter. Just uh, read it from beginning to end and get the overall flow. Now, on the fourth or fifth time, if you want to stop in between and look at some verses, fine. But, but you're just trying to get the general flow of the uh, passage at the start. I would also suggest that you read it in a Bible without notes. In other words, I have one Bible, which I keep, which is, you know, every page is colored and there are notes and everything like that. And then I have another Bible like this, which is really my preaching Bible, and I, I make very few notes in it. When I do a chapter summary, I use a Bible without notes. Why? Because if you use a Bible with notes that you've made previously, you will have a tendency to see the same thing over and over. And you say, you'll, you'll look out here and you see a note and say, oh yeah, I remember that retreat that I went on and... Remember, Max said this, and, and oh, yeah, that was great, and I met that new girl. By the way, I wonder where she is. You know, and your mind gets to start chasing rabbits and, and, you know, that kind of thing. So, so if you just get a scripture or, or a passage of the Bible that doesn't have any notes on it, you're coming to it with an unbiased opinion, not seeing the same old things that you've seen before. Read it in the Bible without notes. Number three, I would suggest that you read it in several different translations. Several different translations. There are a number of good translations out today. Uh, probably most of you use the New American Standard uh, version, which is a, a very accurate and very literal translation. My favorite, the one we use at our church, is the uh, New International Version. And uh, I really like it a lot. It seems to me to be a lot easier to read, and uh, it's, it's just as literal. One of my professors in Hebrew in uh, seminary helped translate the Old Testament and uh, Dr. Walker knew 35 languages. Uh, folks, that's, that's what you call genius. I mean, he knew Babylonian and Ugaritic and Sumerian and Akkadian and all these dead languages that nobody even knows anymore. Uh, and they had uh, a group of scholars of spent about 20 years translating that scripture. Uh, you can read a paraphrase, but just realize that it is a paraphrase. What is a paraphrase? It is when somebody takes the Bible and writes, rewrites it in his own words. It is not a translation. It is somebody's paraphrase of that. Two good paraphrases are the Living Bible, and one that I really like a lot is the Phillips uh, translation, which is the Phillips paraphrase uh, of the Scripture. Another thing that I found helpful when you read is to read it aloud. Now, you don't have to shout it. I mean, you know, for God so love. No, just just read it quietly, but aloud, uh, because some of you have a hard time concentrating. Some of you are having a hard time concentrating right now. Uh, so what do you do? If you read it aloud, a lot of times you'll see things and hear things that you didn't. Now, I know that in speed reading, they say don't read aloud. That slows you down. But we're not trying to be Evelyn Wood or anybody else anyway. You know, we're just trying to get what the Bible says. So read it aloud, and that, that will often help you to focus your attention. Now, as you have read through this chapter five times, 
you begin to look for a series of ten questions. They all begin with C. They're right here on the on the uh, uh, overhead. They're also on your form. So what I want you to do is take your form right now, and let's just walk through the form together. And I'm going to give you a chapter that we're going to uh, study together this morning. And then after a few minutes of studying it, we're going to come back together and... Uh, I'm going, to, I'm going to teach a Bible study on that very passage. Okay, so the first thing you look for, number one, after you've read it through five times, is a caption. You want to give a title to your chapter. Now, the value of, a chap, of the chapter title is it helps you summarize what's in that chapter. The shorter the title, the better it is. Just a short descriptive title. The shorter the title, the better it is. Now, later on, if we had time, I would teach you um, how to do a, a horizontal chart. And what a horizontal chart is, is when you're studying an entire book, you make a column for every chapter in the, in the book. And uh, you, get, you start by giving each chapter a title. Okay, for instance, if this were John chapter 1, the book Gospel of John, what is in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, okay? What else is in there? John the Baptist, okay? Okay, so you could make up a title for, for uh, uh, John chapter 1. You might say, the Word and John. Just a real simple title. See what I'm saying? Just, it doesn't, the, the Word revealed, or, or John proclaims the Word, okay? In chapter 2, what is in chapter 2? Right? The marriage of Canaan, where Jesus turned the water to wine, and one other thing. The cleansing of the temple. Yeah, cleansing of the temple. So, you know, for John chapter 2, you might call it wedding wine, temple cleansed. See, and, and then you've got it down. Anytime somebody says, turn in your Bibles to John 2, you immediately think, wedding wine, temple cleansed. And you know immediately that that speaker is going to teach either on the marriage of Canaan or the cleansing of the temple. John chapter 3. What's in John 3? John 3, 16. <laughs> what else? What's the first part of John 3 about? Nicodemus. And, and what's he talking about? Born again. And what the key word is in John 3? Believe. It's the key word of John. Believe. You know, God so loved the world, whosoever believeth, on down. So you might call this uh, chapter 3, born again through believing. See, a short title. Somebody gets up and says, let's turn to John 3, and you immediately think, born again through believing. And, and you know what's in that chapter. What's in John chapter 4? Well, well. That's right. Some of you heard me before. Well, well. There's two stories in, in, in John 4. There's a story of the woman at the well. And there's a story of the nobleman's son who was made well, who was healed. So in my book, I called this well, well. Okay. So anytime somebody says, turn to John 4, I think, well, well. And I immediately know he's going to talk either about the nobleman's son who was healed, made well, or the woman at the well. So you get a short descriptive title. If we were to title uh, 1 Corinthians 13, what would we call it? Love. That's it. If we were to title Hebrews 11, faith. It's real simple. And see, you know what's in that chapter because it's a one-word caption. Short descriptive title. Okay, number two. The second thing you want to do is you want to describe the contents of the chapter. Now, there are basically five different ways that you can do this in, in, in order to explain the contents of a chapter. You're going to just write them down. You just tell what the chapter is about in that next step in the form. You, you can either summarize it. You can summarize the chapter. Or you can outline it. Or you can paraphrase it. Or you can describe it. Or you can make a list. You say, which one should I use? 
Which one should I use to, uh, to summarize the contents of a chapter? Whichever one you like. Some people love to paraphrase. How many of you like to paraphrase? Okay. Some people like to outline. How many of you like to outline? Okay, all the analytical people. Some people like to make a list. How many like to make a list? Okay, God bless you, yeah. <laughs> I am a lister. I love lists, you know. Uh, in fact, if you were to come and be a member of my church, every sermon is, here's five things I see here, and here's four things I see here, and here's nine things out of this, and ten things out of that. That's just the way I think. I, I just think in terms of lists. So every chapter I summarize, I just make a list. And here's, a, here's five things I see. I write them down. It doesn't matter as long as you just describe the contents of the chapter. Just write it out. Then the third step is you want to look for the chief people. And what you do here is you list the most important people in the chapter. Just ask yourself, who are the main people in this chapter? Now, you may have to refer to a previous chapter to find out who they're talking about. Maybe it's talking about, and he went here and he went there. You have to read the chapter before to find out it's talking about Barnabas or whatever. And so just describe the chief people. Why do you think God put them in the Bible? Just write down their name and who they are. Write down your reason for choosing them as the chief people. Now, you'll have a great time when you get to the genealogies. Number four, the choice verse. Now, in number four, the choice verse, again, you have an option. You can either, A, choose the verse that summarizes the chapter, or B, just choose the verse that really speaks to you. Wh whichever one you want. Just pick out a choice verse in that passage. Either the verse that you think summarizes the whole chapter and what it's saying, or just pick out a verse that really speaks to you uh, as a person. That would be a verse that you would look for possibly as an application verse down in step 10. Okay, then the next step is look for the crucial words. What are the crucial words in the chapter? Oftentimes, it is the word used most. Go to... Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, the, the, chapter 1, the, the word used most often is the word comfort. And uh, that's the key to, to that chapter. Obviously, in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the key word is what? Love, yeah. And in Hebrews 11, the key word is faith. You get over to Romans 7. You know what the key word in Romans 7 is? I. It's the word I. It's used 27 times. And, and it's the picture of the carnal Christian. I, 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 I have my problems. I, I try to do good, but I can't meet my own standards, much less God's. Romans 7, Romans 8, the key word there is spirit. Yeah, spirit, used 19 times. So you look for the key word in each passage and, uh, and write it down. Next step, step six are challenges. What you do here is you list any problems that you have or questions that you want to have answered about that particular text. If you're reading this and you don't understand it, it's a difficulty, write down your question. What in the world did Jesus mean when he said this? Or what in the world does that mean? What, what, I don't understand why this happened, why God did this. Now that's okay. Write down those challenges, those questions that you have about the text because later you can come back and use those as a springboard for other types of study. You can do an in-depth study. Then number seven, cross-references. Cross-references. What you do is you have, a, a, you have to have a study Bible, for one thing, which will have cross-references in the margin. And what that is is when you've got a, a verse of Scripture and you look at the side and it says, see also, and it has a bunch of other verses, it lists other verses that are related to or clarify that particular text, that particular verse. And what you do in this step here is you use the you look up the cross references related to this chapter that you're studying. I was studying one time a chapter on fruit, and, and Jesus says, unless you bring forth fruit, you know, be cut off. And I didn't know which fruit it was talking about. You know, people say, well, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Not necessarily. Fruit is used five different ways in the New Testament. But the cross-reference for that, the quote, I looked it up, and John the Baptist is talking, and he's saying, bring forth the fruit of repentance. He's talking about repentance, not the fruit of the Spirit. 
So, so the cross-references will help you understand the chapter a lot more. You just write them down in that section on the, uh, on the form. Ask yourself, what else in the Bible helps me understand this chapter? Step eight, Christ seen. What you want to do here is you want to list how, what does this chapter teach me about God, about the nature of God, about the nature of Christ? How do I see Christ in this chapter? The Bible, the entire Bible, is really a revelation of the person of Christ. In fact, Jesus used the Old Testament to reveal himself and, and to back up himself. And in uh, uh, Luke 24, he said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he emphasized to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, all of the scriptures are about Christ. So does it show the love of God? Does it show the judgment of God? Does it show the justice of God? Does it show the holiness of God? Does it show us Christ as a teacher, as a healer, as a preacher, as a savior? Well, how does, does it show the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ? How is he seen in this passage? What attributes are, are, uh, are shown here? Sometimes there's symbolism that you'll have to see. A lot of times it's things that are implied. Number nine. Number nine are the central lessons of the chapter. And what you do here is you write down the major principles or insights that you see in the passage. And, and you say, what is the central thought that this writer is trying to get across in this chapter? What is the basic thing he's trying to say? If he were going to only say one thing, what would he be saying? What does God want this passage in the Bible for? And, and you just write those things down. What are the lessons? And again, what do you do? You go back to... Space pets. Is there a sin to confess, promise to claim, attitude to change, command to obey, example to follow, prayer to pray, error to avoid, truth to believe, something to praise God for? And you just write down those things in this passage, uh, in this, in this uh, blank, central lessons. Then the last step is the conclusion. The conclusion is the application of your study. And what you will do is you will either take the choice verse or the central lesson and you say, okay, what does this mean to me? And you write, want to write out a, a project for you to work on to apply that scripture to your life. And remember last night we said that, a, that a, a good application is first practical. What else? Possible. It's, it's personal. And it's provable. Right. So you want to say, I want to do this by such and such a date, or I will do this. And you write out a practical application. Now, there is a man who has taken this method and gone through the entire Bible and put it in a book. It's called the Summarized Bible. It's by Keith Brooks. You might want to pick up a copy of that. But uh, let me encourage you, don't read it until after you've done your own on that particular chapter. Because you don't want to see what he sees necessarily. Anyway, your choice verse might not be his. And you will get a lot, of more, a lot more insights if you'll come without uh, a prejudiced view toward the Scripture. Now, see, that's a real simple method. In fact, it really took me longer to explain it than it would take you to do it on some chapters. You just read it through five times and you fill out the ten things. Now, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings, chapter 19. We're going to do a chapter summary together on 1 Kings, chapter 19, this morning. And the reason I picked this, this chapter is, really, I want to just be an encouragement to you folks. Uh, I think a lot of times we get challenged and challenged and challenged and challenged and challenged. And sometimes we just need some good old encouragement. And uh, if you've had a tendency to be uh, depressed or discouraged or down, this is a tremendous chapter. It is the story of Elijah's depression and God's answer to Elijah's depression. Uh, you know, somebody said that depression is, is the world's number one health problem. Uh, it's kind of the common cold of the emotions. And uh, even great men and women of God get depressed. 
Elijah did, David did, uh, you know, many great leaders. Moses did, Jonah did, uh, and there are different reasons. I want you to read through this chapter, 1 Kings chapter 19. And first, let me give you the background. What had happened previous to that in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah had just had the greatest experience of his life. He had had the the the, the uh, prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel, and they had a God contest. Do you remember that story? 400 prophets of Baal, false idol worship, against one prophet of God. And they go up on the mountain and say, we're going to have a God contest. And whoever God, whoever's God answers by fire, that's what the whole, whole nation is going to, going to serve. So the, the, the Baal prophets sacrificed the bull and they marched around all day and they danced. They even began to cut themselves and cried out their God. And uh, it's really funny because Elijah really taunted them. He said, hey, where's your God? You know, maybe he's asleep. And literally, it says, or maybe he's gone away. Literally, what that says in the bathroom is maybe he's sitting on the toilet. <laughs> Elijah was just being really gross with these people. He was saying, hey, maybe, maybe your God's going to the bathroom and he can't hear you. Because they were praying and praying and praying and nothing was happening. And so then, uh, you didn't know that about Hebrew, did you? <laughs> it's a very descriptive language. <laughs> um and so then Elijah calls on the Lord true God and the fire falls and it's a tremendous miracle and the whole nation turns back to God. And I mean, if anybody deserved to be on a spiritual mountaintop, Elijah did. I mean, he's up here super high. He has just converted an entire nation back to God. And he has every reason to be elated. But in the very next chapter, you find that one lady, Jezebel, criticizes him threatens his life, he runs across the desert, hides in a cave and gets so depressed he wants to commit suicide. He said, God, I am so down, just take my life. Now, that is encouraging to me because if somebody as great as Elijah can get depressed and God can deal with him in it, then we can learn to deal with the, uh, the difficulties and the discouragements that we have in life. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to read 1 Kings chapter 19. Read it through Answer the ten questions. Read it through four or five times. Answer the ten questions. If you have a translation, somebody has a different one from you, switch off. Trade Bibles after you've read through it. So you can read it in different translations. Answer the ten questions. Look at it from this, this viewpoint. I'm going to give you a little hint in advance. What does this tell me about depression? What can I learn about it? What can I learn about God's response to it? Okay? So let's take a, a little bit and go ahead and, and start on your chapter summary at this time. And then I'm going to come back and, and I'm going to teach you this chapter. My favorite verses about Elijah is not even in the story of Elijah. It's in James 5, 16. And um, actually 17. What it says there is Elijah was a man just like us. I like that. It says, Elijah was a man of like passions. He was a man just like us. This guy was an emotional fruit basket. <laughs> Why did he get depressed? Well, let's look. Look at verse 3. There's, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six reasons here uh, that the emotional responses that he had. In the first place, he was afraid. He had fear in his life. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid. He felt threatened. And then, he, then the second thing, he had resentment. You see down there, he says, I've had enough, Lord. Down in verse 4. I've had enough. He, he, had a, he had guilt. He had low self-esteem. He said, I'm no better than my ancestors. So he's got fear. He's got resentment. He's got low self-esteem. He's got anger over in verse 10. He says, I, I've been very, very zealous for the Lord. And, and look what they've done. You know, I've worked hard for nothing. He's got anger. He's got loneliness. He, he isolates himself in a cave. He says, I'm the only one left. And then he's worried. And now they're trying to kill me too. Now folks, if you get fear and resentment and low self-esteem and anger and loneliness and worry in your life, you think you're going to get depressed? <laughs> I mean, he had the full gamut of emotions. 
No wonder he was depressed. Now, now do you see why it says Elijah was a man just like us? This one chapter, he has fear, resentment, guilt, anger, loneliness, and worry. Now, how do people get themselves in such an emotional mess? They do it by faulty thinking, by misconceptions, misconceptions about life. That's why Jesus said, when you know the truth, the truth will what? Set you free. And freedom from depression, among other things, comes from knowing the truth. The truth about yourself, the truth about God, the truth about life. Faulty misconceptions. To overcome your depression, you have to change the way you think. You have to change the way you think. Because your moods are made by your misconceptions. Now, if you are depressed this morning, it's because you are choosing to think depressing thoughts. And you have to correct those incorrect ideas. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, in our lives, typically, we uh, play four little mental games with ourselves. And they are the same four mistakes that Elijah made in this passage. And they are the cause for depression. Let's look at them. The first mistake that people make that causes them to get depressed is that we focus on our feelings rather than on the facts. We focus on our feelings rather than on the facts. And that's what verse 3 is all about. Elijah was afraid and he runs for his life. He says, God, I've had it. I am fed up. It's no use trying. I don't feel like it. I'm just wasting my life. I'm giving up. Now, folks, that's called emotional reasoning. It's saying, I don't feel it, so it must be true. It must not be true. And if you ever intend to be a great musician or a great athlete, or a great anything, you're going to realize that often after a great performance, you feel very discouraged. What had happened? Elijah had just had a tremendous spiritual... Man, he had just converted the nation. And he's discouraged. He's down. He's, he's depressed. And, and that's so common. You know, the Olympic stars will tell you after their performance, half the time they feel very, very depressed. You feel very discouraged and down. And what you have to do as a professional in life is learn to ignore your emotions when they come like that. We focus on our feelings rather than on the facts. And the fact is that feelings are unreliable. They are not the facts. I remember uh, I had been married uh, to my wife Kay for about six weeks. And one morning I woke up and I rolled over in bed and I said, Honey, you know, I just don't feel married. She said, well, you know, buddy, it doesn't matter. You are. <laughs> You're married. <laughs> and regardless of how you feel, the facts are the facts. And if you focus on your feelings rather than on the facts, you're going to get discouraged. You're going to get depressed. Fact is, I don't always feel in the presence of God. I don't always feel God's presence in my life. Do you? That doesn't mean I'm necessarily far away from him. Billy Hank says, sometimes it's kind of hard to get spiritual goosebumps at 6 a.m. in the morning. Your feelings are going to come and go. They are unreliable. Now, the fact was, Elijah had been a success. But he felt discouraged. He felt depressed because he was looking at his feelings. You know, secular psychology says, uh, get in touch with your feelings. But that's not enough. The Bible says, get in touch with the truth. Because your feelings often lie. They are unreliable. And maybe some of you this morning are feeling kind of discouraged. You're feeling kind of depressed. And that's because you're, you're looking at your emotions rather than at the facts. And you're saying, I feel God is far away from me. Therefore, he must be. And you're saying, I feel inadequate. Therefore, I must be. Are you saying, I feel overwhelmed. Therefore, it must be an impossible situation. It's hopeless. Never overcome that problem, that habit. Why? Because you're making the first mistake of depression. You focus on the feelings rather than on the facts. Elijah did that. He had a tremendous cause for rejoicing, but instead he was discouraged. There was a second mistake he made. It's in verse 4. And the second mistake that we make that causes depression is we compare ourselves to others. In verse 4 he says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. You know what I'm saying here? He's saying, Elijah, who do you think you are? 
He's saying, Elijah, I'm a nobody. When I compare myself to my ancestors, man, I just don't measure up. Now, ladies and gentlemen, comparing yourself to others, you are asking for trouble. The Bible warns against it over and over and over. It says, don't compare yourself to other people. Because you set yourself up to be depressed. Everybody's different. Everybody's unique. Everybody has different temp temperaments. And you can only be you. And that's all God expects of you. See, one day I'm going to stand before God in heaven. And God is going to say to me, he's not going to say, Rick, why weren't you more like Moses? He's not going to say, Rick, why weren't you more like Billy Graham? Rick, why weren't you more like Dawson Trotman? He's going to say, Rick, why weren't you more like you? And that's what he's going to say to you, too. Because you are unique. You're an individual. You can't be me. I can't be you. And when you start comparing yourself to others like Elijah, man, I'm no better than my ancestors. They're much better than I was. You're going to get in trouble. You fall into three common traps when you compare yourself. Number one, you might write these down. You compare others' strengths with your weaknesses. And you ignore their weaknesses. That's typical. You say, well, look at that person. He's such a great speaker, and I'm such a lousy one. But you forget that that speaker also has other weaknesses that you are strong in. Another mistake is you try to motivate yourself with criticism when you start comparing. Well, shoot, Dawson, Dawson Trotman had a four-hour quiet time every day that I should. Let's just get one thing straight here, folks. Guilt motivation doesn't work. It doesn't work. Anytime you start saying, I, I, I should, I should, I should, I should, you are guaranteeing procrastination. You're going to resist it. You're going to. Uh, you know, how, how many of you have ever said, I know I should read my Bible every day. I should read it. How many of you believe that? How many of you have found that to be an effective motivator in your life? Maybe a couple of you. But when you start comparing yourself to others and say, I ought to be like them, or I should be like them, uh, what happens is, like you say, you compare your weaknesses with their strengths and ignore their weaknesses. And then the worst thing that you tend to do is you tend to label yourself. And this is what Elijah's doing. I'm no better than my ancestors. And you start labeling yourself with harmful names. You say, instead of saying, I made a mistake, you say, I'm a failure. Instead of saying, I accidentally tripped, you say, I'm a klutz. You know, instead of saying, I ate too much, you say, I'm a pig. <laughs> and you know, all that does is reinforce what you don't want. When you're teaching a Bible study, don't tell people what they are. Tell them what they could be. People say, tell it like it is. No, tell it like it could be. That's preaching for faith. Somebody comes along and says, Rick, you're a lousy father. Does that motivate me? No. I just say, you're right, I'm a lousy father. But if somebody comes along and says, Rick, you could be a tremendous father, and I see potential in your life, you could be a dynamic man of God with your family. I get excited. I get motivated. All of a sudden, I see what I could be instead of looking at what I already know. Going around telling people, you're a sinner, that's not good news. That's not even news. <laughs> you don't have to make people feel guilty, they already do. If you just offer relief, you will find tremendous results in your ministry. Point them to Jesus. Look at verse 10. We blame ourselves for negative events that aren't our fault. In verse 10, it says, um, he replied, Lord, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, but the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They put your prophets to death with a sword. He's saying here, God, I'm blaming myself for failing to change Israel's total behavior. You know, he took it personally. And that responsibility depressed him. It made him feel guilty. It was a heavy burden. Now, if you get involved in a service ministry, a servant ministry, a helping ministry of helping other people, you will sooner or later learn that people do not always respond the way you want them to respond. That not everybody you witness to is going to get saved. Not everybody you counsel is going to do the right thing. And if you accept responsibility for that, you are carrying a responsibility that God never intended for you to have. 
Let me make a statement that can really liberate you from depression. You can be responsible to people, but you cannot be responsible for them. Unless they're a baby. You're responsible to them to, to give them the word of God. You're responsible to them to show them the path. You're responsible to them to warn them, but you cannot control their response. And if you start becoming responsible for people, you will get depressed. Well, I just said, God, I've done it all my best. And, and they're, not, they're not doing what's right. And it's all my fault. You can influence people, but you cannot control them. God has given them a free will. Okay? That's the fourth mistake Elijah made. Focused on his feelings rather than the facts. And, and he, uh, he compared himself to others. And he blamed himself for, for negative events. It wasn't his fault. He had proclaimed the word of God truthfully. But now he was accepting it all on himself, the responsibility, the blame. Fourth mistake that we happen to do when, we're, when we uh, get depressed is we exaggerate the negative. We exaggerate the negative. Look at the, look at the second part of, of verse 10. Did you see this? I'm the only one left, Lord. And now they're trying to kill me. Now, everybody's against me. Well, I mean, Elijah was having one gigantic pity party. I mean, and you know the problem with self-pity? We love it. We don't want to be cured of it. It's so much fun wallowing in pity. Oh, poor me. Only I. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Now, he, he's exaggerating the negative. I'm the only one left. What was the fact? The fact is there was only one person, a woman, after him. And she had offered a, a, a bogus threat. It, there was only one person after him, Jezebel. One woman in the entire nation with an empty threat. Now, if, if Elijah had stopped and thought about it, instead of listening to his feelings, he would have reasoned to himself, if Jezebel really had wanted to kill me, she would have not have sent a messenger. She would have sent a hitman. <laughs> Look at verse 2. Notice what it says there. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Just like he, he says, just like you killed those 400 prophets of Baal, I'm going to snuff your life out. By tomorrow. Now, like I said, if, if she had really wanted to kill him, she could have just sent an executioner. But no, she sent a messenger. Why? Because Jezebel was clever. She was clever. And she was clever enough to know that killing Elijah would make him a martyr. After the greatest event that had just happened, it would have made him a martyr, possibly caused, caused a revolt among the people. Maybe a revival would have broken out. And on top of that, she knew he was a man of God. And she feared what God would do to her. No, she's too clever then to, to wipe him out. What she does is she, she intimidates him. And she lets him get away. So what happens? Something much worse than death. Elijah is remembered as a coward. He runs the other side. Man, that's much worse. I mean, one minute he's a hero. The next minute he's a zero. <laughs> you know? And, and uh, uh, Jezebel wasn't going to kill him. That was an empty threat. She was afraid of what God would do if she touched a man of God. But she knew she could scare him. She could intimidate him. And she could make him look like a coward in the eyes of everybody he was the big hero in. Anyway... You see, we exaggerate the negative and we don't look at the facts when we get depressed. That's what Elijah did. When you get down, you get discouraged, everything seems to be wrong. You know, you get a pessimistic outlook. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go eat worms. <laughs> you know, everything's bad. The world is going to the dogs. Folks, I don't believe that. I really don't. Where grace did abound... Or sin did abound, grace did much more abound. You're be you bet there's a lot of bad in the world. There's a lot of negative, And there's a lot of unrighteousness in the world. But there's also a lot 
a spiritual growth taking place. And God's at work in lives. And you can look at the cup half full or half empty. The fact is, yes, there are, our culture is, is going down the tubes. It is, it is degrading. But there's a lot of good things going on too. It's not all totally bad. It's not all totally good. We, we exaggerate the negative. What was the fact? Well, look at verse 18. God says to Elijah, who says, I'm all alone and everybody's out to get me. Verse 18, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. The fact was there were at least 7,000 other people who were still loyal to Jehovah God. Elijah wasn't alone. He was just choosing to look at it from a negative viewpoint. He was discouraged. He was down. So when you get these things in your life, anger and fear and worry and depression and guilt and loneliness and low self-esteem, and then you start focusing on the feelings instead of the facts, and you compare yourself to other people, and you, and you exaggerate the negative, and you try to accept responsibility for things that God never intended for you to be responsible for, you're going to get depressed. Now, fortunately, this story gives us God's solutions to the remedy for Elijah's depression. And here they are. Number one, the first thing God would say to you if you're discouraged, if you're depressed, is take care of your physical needs. Take care of your physical needs. This is what he did there in verses 5 to 8. Elijah is down. He's all discouraged. He says, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then in verse 5, then he lay down under the tree and he fell asleep. And at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals, a jar of water. He ate and drank, laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate, and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. I love that. You know, the fact that, that God knows our nature, and the fact that God didn't come and scold Elijah... He didn't give him a sermon. He said, Elijah, you shouldn't be depressed. That's a sin. That would only have added to his guilt. Elijah said, I know it. I know it. I feel so bad about it. What did God do? You know what God's remedy for Elijah's depression was? Eat, sleep, and relaxation. He says, go to bed. Get up. Eat something. Go back to bed. Get up. Eat something more. Go back to bed. He is recharging Elijah's batteries because if you are involved in ministry, you are going to be emotionally drained. And you have to get that replenished. You know, it's amazing that a good night's rest can do wonders for your attitude. It really can. Some of you are at Glorietta when I said, you know, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go to bed. Now, please don't get up and leave right now. <laughs> well, I believe that. And the first thing God did, he did not scold him. He didn't give him a sermon. He just said, Elijah, you just need to get your body in shape. Weariness and fatigue promotes depression. If you want to develop a great preventative for depression, just get in shape. Eat the right food, get the right amount of sleep, get plenty of exercise. That's the first step he'd say to you. Second thing. Second remedy for God's depression is down in verse 9, for Elijah's depression. Verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? God asked him a question. And Elijah just kind of pours it out. He says, I've been zealous. and I've worked my tail off. And, and what, what do I get for it? The Israelites have rejected your covenant. And they haven't followed you. And, you know, and I'm the only one. And he's, he's just kind of moaning. Just kind of plain. The second thing that God would say to you about your depression is don't suppress your frustrations. Just tell them to God. Don't, don't hold it all in. Just confess it to God. What happened here is God comes to Elijah and he says, Elijah, what's bugging you? Elijah, what are you bothered about? Elijah, what's got you tied up in a knot? And Elijah says, well, come to think of it. And he just kind of spills out his guts. And he says, this is the way I feel. I'm frustrated. I'm hurt. I'm discouraged. I'm disappointed. And, and God just let Elijah pour out his inner feelings. 
You just kind of let off steam. There is nothing wrong with that. God let him complain until he was out of words. He just kind of let him spew it all out. He allowed Elijah to express this pent-up emotion. You know something? I think the point here is this. God is not shocked when you complain to him. You know, someday I'm going to preach a sermon on, on phrases that God never uses. One of the phrases that God never uses is, Oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? I, I, I had no idea, Elijah. Another phrase that God never uses, Oops. <laughs> so you wait for that one to come out, okay? by the tape <laughs> don't suppress your frustration tell him to God you know God wants to help and and sometimes you just need to just get along with God and say God I hurt that's what Elijah did you know I had my best my next door neighbor uh, two weeks ago committed suicide a lady that I had to form the wedding for that hurts that hurts. You know, and I just had to tell it to God. You know, that's what David did. That's what the Psalms are. You read, you know, I never understood some of the Psalms until I understood this point. That God, it's okay to complain to God. David says, God, I don't like it. This situation stinks. Get back at them, God. Smash their babies. You know, you know that's what he says. I'm not lying to you. You know. I don't like it. Knock their heads off. I want revenge. And God just sits back and says, okay, David, that's a good one. We'll put it in the songbook. God's remedy for depression. First, take care of your physical condition. If you need to get some sleep and rest, do it. Then take care of your emotional condition. Just if you need to complain to God, go ahead. He's not going to sh be shocked at you. He's not going to put you down. He's going to let you get it all out. And then you come to the healing process. And, that, and that's step three. And step three is this. Get ready for a fresh awareness of God's presence in your life. Get ready for a fresh awareness of God's presence in your life. That's what happened in verse 11. Well, I just finally run out of words. And in verse 11, the Lord says, Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And there's a great and powerful wind, and it tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. You know what, what, what's happening here is God says to Elijah, Elijah, I've got something for you to see. I want to show you something. Come outside. And he puts on this tremendous fireworks, earthquake, wind, fire. And then he speaks to him in a still, small voice. The fact of the matter is that God usually speaks to us in stillness and in quietness. The reason why maybe God's never said anything to you this last year is you weren't quiet enough to hear him. You had the radio blaring all the time. Your channels were clogged. One of the greatest things you can do here at Glen Erie is just go off by yourself and just shut up. Just be quiet. Let God speak to you. God reminded Elijah that he was still right there beside him. He said, I never left you. You felt everything was going to pot, but I've been here all along. And the fact is, God loves you just as much on your bad days as he does on your good days. The application is this. You get alone with your Bible, and you talk to God, and you let him talk to you, and that is one of the greatest antidepressants you can find. Sometimes it helps just to get a good Christian friend and to share what's on your heart. 
and say, would you mind just listening to me for a minute? I need to just share some things that are kind of bottled up inside. And after you've got them all out, you get ready for a fresh experience of God's presence in your life. And you get alone with it. Then there's one other step that God gave Elijah to cure him of his depression. That's down in verse 15 and 16. And the fact is, fourth thing, let God give you a new purpose and a new direction for your life. Let him give you a new purpose and a new direction for your life. Verse 15. The Lord said to him, in other words, to Elijah, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. And, and by the way, Elijah, when you get over there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. And also while you're there, anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And also while you're there, he says, anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphtah, from Abel Mahola, to succeed as your prophet. The quickest way to get out of your depression is to get your attention off yourself and get it involved in helping others. And that's the last step. He said, okay, Elijah, you've got your sleep. You've, you, you've got the emotions off your chest. You've, seen, you've had a, a presence experience with me and a personal renewing. Now let's get back to work. Let's get back out there in ministry. Get your attention off yourself and get your eyes on helping others. Don't sit around and self-pity. Get active in a ministry. Lose your life to find it, said Jesus. And God's final solution for Elijah's depression is he, he just gave him a new job by which he would go out and help others. God wasn't finished with him yet. Some of you this morning, you're kind of down, kind of discouraged. Maybe you didn't even want to get out of bed this morning. And you've thought to yourself, you know, everything's against me. And I feel gloomy. And I feel trapped in a hopeless situation. And you're constantly tired. I'm so tired. That's a sign of depression. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. <laughs> and maybe you just feel kind of like Elijah. And you just feel like, man, I just want to chuck it. I just want to run from it all. Well, God has some good news for you. Let's bow our heads. Some of you, I can tell it on your faces, have been really down. And you just have such a hard time making decisions. And some days you don't even know what you're going to do. You don't have any energy. You just feel like running from it. As I said, I have good news for you. There is hope. There is hope. You are not alone. God cares about you. There are people sitting around you who care about you. And you can change with God's help. You need to establish first a personal relationship with Christ if you haven't done that. Talked about that last night. He wants to be a part of your life. Give him control. Say, Jesus Christ, come into my life. Make yourself real to me. Just ask him to give you a new purpose in life. Ask him to give you a reason greater than yourself which will draw you out of yourself and your depression. Now, some of you this morning, you are depressed because of guilt. And there are some skeletons in your closet that are just kind of hounding you, and, and you, you regret the past and you worry about the future so you can't enjoy the present. And you, you just feel guilty. Well, God's answer to that is forgiveness. You need a clear conscience. You need freedom from that past so you can get on with life. So you've made some sins. You've made some mistakes. You have fallen short of the glory of God. What do you do? Confess it. First John 1, 9. Right now in your heart, say, God, you know that thing that has bugged me. I know it was wrong. I admit it, and I ask you to forgive me. 
please clear my conscience. I ask you to forgive me. He has promised to. And then, you know, after you've done that, you need to ask and say, God, I accept your forgiveness. I believe you have forgiven me. And I ask you to help me to forgive myself. Some of you are depressed just because you don't like yourself. You don't like the way you look. You don't like the way you act. You say, I just don't like me. Well, again, you're looking at your feelings, not the facts. The facts are God made you for a purpose. And that you are valuable to him. And when you place your life right in the center of his will, it gives tremendous meaning to your life. And you are worthwhile. Would you say in your heart right now, would you pray a prayer like this and say, God, Lord, help me to take care of my physical body. Not to let it be abused. Get out of shape. And then would you say, Lord, thank you that it's okay for me to, to, to tell you about my frustrations and to complain to you. Thank you for loving me and accepting me. But God, help me to get my eyes off myself and first onto you so that I can realize you're here with me all along and that you are sufficient for any situation that I might face. And then say, Lord, help me to get my eyes on other people. And focus on helping them. And serving them. And telling them about Christ. Not out of guilt. But out of gratitude. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.